Well, if you are new to this series, you haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, we're so glad to have you, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time catching you up, but you can go right here. We've got a website. You can go to botnseries.com. You can find all these messages and uh, watch those, share them with friends. If you sit here today and you think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear that, this is a place you can send them so that they can catch up and get on the same page with you, and hopefully y'all can have a great conversation about what you have heard. But basically, we've been talking about what do you do when you find yourself in the bottom of the ninth, and the way we define that is a bottom of the ninth is simply a moment when you experience a, uh, a setback that requires a seemingly impossible comeback. And we talk through what it looks like and to, to address those in such a way that you have faith while you acknowledge the doubts that are there, so you have faith while you acknowledge all the difficulties. We talked last week about the fact that not every bottom of the ninth ends in a comeback. Sometimes you lose, but how you live as you lose determines how you can be used. What I want to do today is I want to come at this from a different angle as we wrap up. I want to shift gears and I want to ask this question instead. How do you respond when others are in the bottom of the ninth? Because whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, no matter what you believe, you know, wherever all of us land on this face spectrum, we have a lot of things in common. And one of the things we have in common is we probably right now have some friends, have some family members, have some co-workers or classmates who are in a bottom of the ninth. It's a, it's a co-worker who just found out they had cancer, it's a friend who, you know, suddenly lost their mom. It's those friends, that couple that they've got the baby that, you know, won't sleep and thinks day is night and night is day and they look like they're zombies when they're walking. I mean, they're just holding on for dear life and they're not sure if they're ever going to get through that season. It may be uh, the buddy years in your small group who just had surgery or had a, you know, a complication from a surgery and, you know, they're dealing with all that comes with that. It may be the friend or the family member who's dealing with depression, who's going through a divorce or who's considering divorce. It may be, you know, the friend you've got who just put their son or daughter into rehab. It could be things that aren't quite that large, but it's the, the friends who are having another, it feels like another financial setback or it feels like, you know, another a bump in the marriage or another bump in the dating relationship or another bump in the career. I mean, all of us know people, don't we? And it's probably coming to your mind right now. Friends or family members you have that are going through bottom of the ninth moments. And isn't this true? And none of us like to admit this. We don't say this out loud, but I'll say it for us, okay? So when, whenever you get that phone call, whenever you get that text, whenever you run into them and they start telling you, yeah, this just happened, yeah, this just happened, yeah, this just happened, there's some things, there's some thoughts that tends to, tend to run through our minds. And they're very, you know, they're just normal thoughts. They're very natural thoughts. For some of us, here's what we think. We think, well, I'm relieved it's not me. And again, we wouldn't say that because it sounds terrible, but we hear their story and we're thinking, oh, thank God it's not me. And we, we literally mean that. And this isn't a bad thing. This is like, it just kind of reframes our perspective and the stuff we're griping about or the stuff we're frustrated about or the stuff we're stressed about. Suddenly we realize, well, wait a minute, I'm so grateful for the life I'm ha- I have. I'm so grateful that I'm not in their shoes facing what they're facing. What I'm dealing with, not so bad after all, so this is a good thing. I mean, it can, it can cause you to be grateful. Sometimes the reality is what pops in our head is why well, I helped last time. Okay, thanks for telling me, but last time I was involved. And honestly, this could be a healthy thought because if this is a recurring thing where helping, continuing to help somebody enables irresponsible behavior in them, then yeah, maybe you shouldn't help them. Sometimes this can be selfish though, let's admit it. Sometimes we're thinking, okay, well I did it last time. I don't wanna have to dive into that mess or, you know, put myself in that situation again. Sometimes we simply think this. This is probably true a lot more than we want to admit. Well, I don't have time, okay? It's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, if you're a Christian or, you're, you know, you've got some type of faith, you look at them and say, I'll be praying for you or I'll be thinking about you. But, you know, you're thinking in your head, I do not have time to help. I do not have time to help. It'll cost too much. It'll be in, too inconvenient. I've got too many things going on in my world. 
And usually that's just, you know, the selfishness that's coming out in us. But the reality is there's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't it? So when there's a friend going through a bottom of the knife or a coworker that's struggling, or, you know, somebody shares a difficult situation, this pops in our heads a lot of time. But that being said, I, I know you guys, at least, you know, I know most of you that attend our church. And you have demonstrated over the years, I know this is true, you've demonstrated over the years that in spite of all those things that pop in our head, that you're a group of people who really do want to be for others. You're a group of people who really do want to show up for others and you want, who want to help. But this is a thought, this is, at least it's true for me, and I bet it's true for you. This is a thought that pops in our heads so often. It's this thought of, well, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what to do. Like you hear this story and you're thinking, this is awful and I would love to help them. I just don't know what to do. And I, I definitely don't want to do something I shouldn't do and mess up and make the situation worse because we've all been there and seen that. Right? I have done that more than once. You probably have too. So we're thinking, I, I just don't know what to do here. And what often happens, this is what I want us to talk about for a few minutes. What often happens is because we're not sure what to do, we miss the moment and we miss the opportunity to make a difference. We miss the moment and we miss the opportunity to lean into or to walk into the mess of someone else's bottom of the knife. And be there to provide the kind of encouragement, the kind of support, the kind of love, the kind of help that they most desperately need in that moment. And the kind of encouragement and love and help and support that we would want if we were in the middle of that bottom of the knife. But there's still this thing of, okay, well, I don't know what to do. Like they're struggling with this and the, the infertility and I, I don't have any answers. What do I do? Where I'm struggling with this, you know, their mom and everything going on. And I just don't know what to do. Like you, there's just something else that goes, oh, I'm, I just don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to mess it up. So I'm not going to do anything. But that is not, that is not the best approach. So what I want to do is take a few minutes today to dig into this question of well, how do you respond? And what do you do when you don't have any idea what to do? There is a story that Mark, who wrote one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, he wrote one of the accounts of Jesus' life. There's a story he tells, and it's actually in two of the other Gospels as well. But Mark tells us of a, of a time when Jesus found himself in this situation, and actually he wasn't the one who didn't know what to do, but there were a group of people around him who didn't know what to do. And they give us a great example of how to respond when other people are in bottom of the knife. So I need to give you a little backstory on this before we jump into it. This story takes place in a small town, and you might even call it a village, named Capernaum. Named Capernaum. Let me tell you a little about Capernaum. It, it sat on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum was a little town of about 1,500 people. It was a fishing village. So it was very, very small. Everybody knew everybody, you know, just 1,500 people. Everybody knew everybody. This was where many of Jesus' disciples had grown up. Guys like Peter and Andrew and James and John, they all grew up in Capernaum. There may have been some others that grew up. And this became Jesus' de facto headquarters, so to speak, or his base of operations. Jesus lived here and operated out of here to do his ministry. And so he, he was in and out of Capernaum all the time. And it was in one of these times early in his ministry when he's in Capernaum that we get a great example, we get some great advice and input on what to do when you don't know what to do when you have a friend in the bottom of the knife. So I just want to jump right into the story, and then we'll pull a couple very practical things out of it that hopefully will help you and help me next time we have a friend in a bottom of the knife moment. So here's how the story begins. Mark chapter 2 says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, so he'd been gone, now he comes back, the people heard that he had come home. 
And then verse 2 says this. They gathered in such large, num large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Now, the reason there was this reaction is because when Jesus started his ministry, he healed a lot of people in Capernaum. There were several sick people, several disabled people that he had healed. And again, a town of 1,500, like everybody knows everybody. A town of 1,500, everybody hears about everything. We get that around here, don't we? We understand that. So because of that, when he left and when he came back, everybody knows he's shown up back in town. And everybody wants to see what he's going to do next. And everybody is just, there's just so much buzz about this. So they all show up at this house that he's at. And we don't know for sure, but most historians believe this was Peter's house. Peter lived here. Peter's mom lived here. Uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law lived here in Capernaum. So most people believe that Jesus was at Peter's house. And when, when folks hear that he's there, I mean, they pack the house. They pack the yard outside the house. There is no standing room left. Everybody is there. The best way mentally to, to envision this is imagine what would happen if here in Murray, word leaked out, that to surprise you at your birthday party, Taylor Swift or Beyonce had shown up to sing you happy birthday and they were at your house. Like, you would shut the entire block, you would shut the whole town down, wouldn't you? It would be like, oh my gosh, everybody, you know, 30 and under would show up. So, they would all be there. So, some of you are like, who, who are those people? You can Google them later. But everybody under 30 would be there. It would shut the whole place down. Well, they literally, when Jesus showed back up, because everything he'd done, it shut the town down down. And that's where the story picks up, and that's where we're introduced to a group of people who have a friend in a bottom of the ninth moment, and they're just trying to figure out what to do to help him. So here's what Mark says happens next. Some men came. We don't know how many. It's a group of them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So there's a group of men. We don't know how many, but these men have a friend who's in a bottom of the ninth. He's lived his whole life in the bottom of the knife because he's paralyzed. We don't know if he was born this way or if something happened, but from the time this disability affected his life, he has been in the bottom of the knife, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But in this culture and in this time, there were, it was so hard for people who had disabilities. They were left, in most cases, just to beg or to depend on somebody else. There was no way they could sustain themselves. And so this was a very, very difficult life, a very, very difficult world. And the life expectancy of people who were paralyzed, was much, much shorter in this day and in this time. So here's a guy who's struggling, and he has a group of friends. This is pretty interesting to me. He has a group of friends who, when they hear Jesus has come back, they've known the stories, they've heard about what he did first time he was here. So when they hear that he's come back, their immediate thought is, we think we can do something to help our friend who's struggling. We're going to go pick him up, and we're going to get him to the house, and we're going to see if Jesus can help him. We can't solve his problem, but we think Jesus just might. And so they do. They grab him. They, you know, kind of carry him, bounce him across town. They get him to the house. The problem is when they show up, they show up late. The place is already packed. There is no way for them to get him to Jesus. And so they're standing there thinking, what do we do? What do we do? Like, you know, concerts sold out. The doors are shut. Like, what, how, how are we going to help our friend? How are we going to tell our friend, okay, we, you know, we went to all this trouble to get you over here. I'm sorry you had to go through all that, but now you're not going to get to meet Jesus. So here's what Mark tells us they did. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they said, sorry, buddy, we'll try again next time Jesus brings this show through town. See, none of you read your Bibles because I just made that up. You're like, really? I don't remember that being in there. You should read your Bible. You really should. No, 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 that's not what they did. I mean, they, they, they see the crowd and the place is packed out, but they're not just not going to say, okay, sorry, you know, 
too bad, dude. We, we tried. You know, you know we care about you because we tried and then just bounce him back across town to his home. No, they don't do that. They're going to do something much more meaningful. Here's what they're going to do instead. Since they couldn't give him to Jesus, they all took a selfie together and got hashtag thinking about you, bro, trending, trending on social media. Because now their buddy's famous and everybody's thinking about him for a minute. Again, no, I mean, a little more meaningful maybe, but this doesn't help the guy at all, does it? This does not help the guy. No, no, no. Mark tells us this. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, pause. They stopped and they thought, okay, what are we going to do here? Because we've got a friend who's in the bottom of the knife. What are we going to do here because we've got a friend who's struggling? And we cannot help him with what he's going through. We can support him. We can encourage him. We can love him. But we cannot fix this problem for him. But they did not give up. And the reason they didn't give up is because with all of their hearts and all of their souls, they believed this. They believed if we can get him to Jesus, something good will happen. It's why they'd gone to all the effort, and it's why they refused to walk away when the place was packed. They refused to walk away when the doors were closed. They refused to walk away when people said, nope, you'll never get in to see him today. But they were convinced, wait a minute, our friend is struggling. We can do all we can to support. We can't fix it. But if we can get him to Jesus, he can. If we can get him to Jesus, something good will happen. And so here's what they did. Maybe you're familiar with this story if you grew up in church. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. A bit extreme, wouldn't you say? Now here's the thing. and Mark doesn't give us all the details. But in my head, as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking... I would love to know who came up with that idea, first of all. Who was the guy in this group that was like, hey, guys, nobody's on the roof. Like, you know, how did they get him up there? I don't know if there were stairs. I don't know if they had to climb it and then pull the guy up. I mean, whatever it was, this wasn't easy. I would have loved to have seen the look on the man's face who was lying on the mat when he heard them saying, yeah, what if we take him to the roof and just drop him? Like, it's, you know, it, this, is, this is a little irrational. But they are so convinced, if we can just get him to Jesus, something good will happen, that they're going to do whatever it takes. And so they do. They get up on the roof. They start to disassemble the roof. Meanwhile, inside, you've got to picture this. Meanwhile, inside, Jesus is teaching. Everybody is quiet. Everybody is locked in until dust and debris starts falling. And the next thing you know, there's a hole in the roof. The sun is shining through. And then there's a face. And again, it's a town of 1,500. So you know most everybody in that house recognizes the guys on the roof. You know, most everybody in the house was going, is that Joe? What in the world are they doing? Meanwhile, Peter's probably over there on the side going, why are you tearing up my roof? Like this, you know, this is, if I turn this into insurance, they are going to claim act of God definitely here. I'm not, he's in the house. Like I'm going to have to foot this out of my own pocket, you know? It, it, it was such a mess. Again, I don't think we can just wrap our minds around just how ridiculous this was. But they tear the roof off. Debris falling down. Everything stops. They've interrupted Jesus. Now they've risked making Peter mad. They've risked making the crowd mad. And most of all, they have risked making Jesus mad. But they don't care. Because they are convinced if we can just get our buddy to Jesus, something good is going to happen. And so they drop him through the roof in front of Jesus. Now, here's where this intersects with our lives. I think there is a great lesson here that they teach us. When we have friends who are in the bottom of the knife, here's the thing to remember. Very simply, 
we don't need to be perfect, just present. When you got a friend in the bottom of the knife, don't be perfect, just present. What I mean by that is this. Don't try to come up with the perfect words of wisdom, the perfect response, the perfect way to help, the perfect scripture. Our, our job is not to be perfect. If you, try to, if you try to do that, you just end up paralyzing yourself and you do nothing. You don't be perfect, you just be present. The best thing you can do for a friend in the bottom of the knife is to show up. Is to show up. They do not need, I've learned this over the years, and I'm still not great at this, but they don't need the perfect words of wisdom. They don't. They don't need, you know, the perfect story. And there's some of us, if you're not a Christian, this drives you crazy about Christians, and you have every right to be driven crazy by us, because what we tend to do, and as Christians, you know this, we tend to find somebody who's struggling, and we want to come up with the, you know, the perfect Bible verse to tell them, and we start, you know, well, God says all things work together for good. That's so not helpful in that moment. But, you know, we're just, we're just doing our best, and we're, we've got good intentions, but we're just giving them scripture that, it, you know, it's not helpful at all. It's not encouraging in the moment. Or we're trying to tell them, well, you know, my friend went through this, or, you know, I went through this once. We're telling them stories, but in the moment, they don't need to hear those stories. You know what they need to know? They just need to know somebody is there. That's what they need. They need to know what you're praying for them. That's important. I believe in that 100%. But even prayer alone really isn't enough. They need to know you're praying for them, but they need to also see you show up. They need to see me show up. And by show up, I simply mean ask yourself, if I were in their shoes... What would be something I, could, I would want somebody to do that would communicate their love and support to me? So maybe it's you pray for them and you take them a meal. Maybe it's you pray for them and you sit in a waiting room with them so they're not alone. Maybe it's you pray for them and you go mow their yard because they got so many other things going on, they just don't have time to get to that or they don't need to get to that. They don't need to worry about that. Maybe you pray for them and you just go out to coffee with them and you listen. And you just let them unload for an hour or for a couple hours. And you don't say anything, you don't quote them any scripture, you don't try to solve anything. You just listen, and you let them know that you care. I don't know what this looks like, but what I do know is you don't have to be perfect with it. The thing these guys did that was so good, they certainly did not come up with a perfect plan. But they were present. They showed up, and God honored that. Here's what Mark says happened next. When Jesus saw their faith, I don't know if I can fully explain this, he didn't see the faith of the paralyzed man. Mark says he saw the faith of this group of guys who decided we're going to show up and be present and we're convinced if we can just get our buddy to Jesus, something good will happen. When he saw their faith, he said, Jesus did, to the paralyzed man who's now lying in front of him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't think we probably grasped just how disappointing this was. But I've got to believe that everybody on that roof and the paralyzed man on the map, the minute Jesus said this, their faces sunk. Their hearts sunk a little bit. Because they did not show up to have Jesus forgive this man's sins. They showed up because they believed Jesus could help this man walk. What they wanted to hear was Jesus say, you are healed, get up and walk. Not, your sins are forgiven. So I think this was probably a little disheartening to them. But I tell you, and this is just my opinion, but here's why I think Jesus did this. Because in that culture, there was a very strong belief that if you had any kind of disability, it was because of your sins or it's because of the sins of your parents. In other words, if you were disabled, people in this culture, and we can't wrap our minds around this today, but it's just so foreign to us. But they genuinely believed if you were disabled, it was because God had done it to punish you for your sins. Which meant any disabled person went through the rest of their life believing God was not for them. 
God was not on their side. God was angry with them. And so I think Jesus started here. I think he looked at the man and said, sons, your sins are forgiven, because he wanted to communicate something very powerful. He wanted to help this man understand something much deeper than just you can walk again. He wanted him to know this isn't because God's angry with you. He's for you. He's on your side. And he's with you, even when you're in the bottom of the knife. But it made some people in the crowd angry. Particularly, it made the religious leaders angry when Jesus said this. And you're going to see why. Here's what Mark tells us happened. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves when they heard Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. They thought, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which I think Jesus was kind of like, and your point is? I mean, that's the whole reason I'm telling you this, because I am God. Like He, he claimed that over and over and over again. So Jesus says, yeah, I can, I can forgive sins, but they don't believe this. So they're going, whoa, you don't have the right to do that. The story goes on. Verse 8, immediately, Mark says, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to these religious leaders, next slide, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now let me answer that for you. It is much easier to look at someone and say your sins are forgiven, and here's why. Because there is no way you can prove if that actually happened or not in the moment. So it's much easier. Imagine this. Imagine that you came up here and, you know, this was, it was me and you were in the situation of this man. If I look at you and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, you, you know, you kind of walk out and go, well, are they, are they or aren't they? Well, I don't know, but I could claim, yeah, they are. I told you. You know, there's no way to disprove my claim. But if I say, hey, you just get up out of that wheelchair and you start walking. Well, you're going to know immediately whether I'm who I say I am or not. Jesus says, it, it'd be far, it's far easier for me to say your sins are forgiven from the standpoint of, you can't, that doesn't prove I am who I am. You can't prove whether his sins are really forgiven or not. But I'm about to show you I am who I am, and I'm about to show you by healing this man. And so Jesus goes on, he says this to them. But I want you to know, he's talking to these teachers of the law, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I am God come to earth. I want you to know I am who I say I am. And Mark goes on and says this. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. I'm going to just pause right here. Can you imagine how much drama and tension was in the house at that moment? Because again, your sins are forgiven. Like everybody could be like, really? Well, are they? Are they not? I mean, there's no way to know. But when Jesus said, okay, now it's time for you to get everybody, again, it's, there's 1,500 people in this town. Everybody knows this man's story. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows he's disabled. And now we're about to decide. Now we're about to see whether Jesus has the power that he claims that he has. There was so much drama and tension at this moment. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. And Mark tells us they all watched this. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. No concerns, no doubts anymore. That man is who he says he is. Now what I found interesting about this is that when Jesus heals this man, he walks out of the house. And I thought, what in the world was he doing? Like, you know, you would think a hug for Jesus, hang out there with Jesus, figure out how you can help Jesus. No, he just walks out in full view of them all. And then it dawned on me. I know why he walked out. He wasn't walking out to leave and go home. My guess is he sprinted right up to the roof 
Because the thing that was on his mind is, I got to hug my buddies. I got to thank my buddies. They did for me what nobody else could do. They showed up, and it was not perfect. They showed up. They made a mess. They demolished this house. But in the process, it changed my life because they were willing to be present to help me. And Mark wraps his story up with this statement. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, here, here's the point, and here's where this intersects with all of us. For these men who loved and cared about their friends so much, for these men, they were convinced of this, that if we can bring someone to Jesus, something good will happen. Because he was physically present. He was there. Imagine how awesome that would be to just, you know, walk over to his house, to look him in the eye, to shake his hand, to say, we've got our buddy here and he's got a need. I mean, this is all they had to do. They just had to get somebody physically in the presence of Jesus. And they were convinced and they saw it happen. Something good is going to happen. But we don't have this luxury today. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what the New Testament writers taught us is that we can hold on to a truth and we can hold on and believe something that's very similar with a tweak. What we believe is this. If we can bring Jesus to someone, something good will happen. Because again, we can't take people physically to his presence. But Paul said, when Paul was writing to some of these Christians in the first century, Paul said, do you realize that when you get together as a group of Christians, when you get together as a church, that you are the body of Jesus? This is an analogy he used. He said, you're the body of Jesus. Like None of you are that good personally or on your own, but collectively, when you all get together, people should be able to experience among you what it would be like to physically be in the presence of Jesus because of how God loves and lives through you. And so Paul believed and Paul taught that for all of us, if we can just bring Jesus to someone, something good will happen. And the way we do that, the way we do that as followers of Jesus is by how we serve people. It's by how we love people. It's by how we, we give to people. It's by how we pray for people. It's by how we support people. It's, for how we, it's by how we show up in the lives of people and demonstrate God's love and grace to them in a very tangible, practical way when they are in the bottom of the knife. Listen, let me just connect these dots real quickly. This is why, this is why, we do everything that we do as a church. This is why when we talk about for Callaway and doing the things we do in our community, this is why we do it all. Because we have become convinced, we have seen this happen over the history of our church. Time and time and time again, and this is some of your stories. You are here today because a group of Jesus followers showed up and served, loved, gave sacrificially in such a way that you caught a glimpse of your heavenly Father's love for you through the way they loved you and through the way they served you. They brought, in essence, they brought Jesus to you so you could experience and see him for yourself. And you decided, if that's what it's like, I want to follow him. If that's what it's like, I want to be a part. If that's what it's like, I want what they have. It's why we do everything we do here every Sunday. It's why our volunteers serve you so sacrificially here every week. It's why they put all the effort in that they put in to set everything up, you know, to make sure you have great experiences and to greet you when you arrive and to walk in with an umbrella when it's raining and to make sure your kids are so pumped about it that they run out and can't wait to come back the next week. The thing that when, when guests show up here, friends of mine from other places or just you know, guests and they start talking to me, the thing they always comment about is we cannot get over the people who serve and volunteer at this church, they're extraordinary. And I'm like, yeah. 
And the reason they're so extraordinary and the reason they're willing to sacrifice so much and the reason they love so well is because we are convinced that if we can bring Jesus to someone, something good will happen. And we're convinced through very simple acts of loving and serving that God does something supernatural with that. That he, he multiplies that in a way that people experience Jesus. And it's bigger than us and it's better than us and it's way more than what we could do on our own. But when we make ourselves available to love, to serve, to give, to sacrifice, God multiplies that in some extraordinary, extraordinary ways. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, here's what I want us to remember. And you do such a good job of this, but we can never, ever forget this. And there's a tendency to, because the gravitational pull in all of our hearts is to turn inward, isn't it? Let's be honest. The gravitational pull of all of our hearts is to think about ourselves and our needs and our wishes and our wants and not to sacrifice or serve for others. But you've got to remember, we've been called to something bigger. You've got to remember, there's a bigger purpose that God has for the opportunities that he gives you and he gives me to step into someone else's bottom of a knife. And bring Jesus to them in a very tangible way. I'll say it this way. Bottom of the ninth friends will tear the roof off to help you. And we can never forget that. Like how far is too far? Well, there's no, there's no too far. I mean, it's just, you just go wherever God leads and you do whatever he asks. Bottom of the ninth friends will do whatever it takes. They will tear the roof off to help you. They'll pray and they'll cook meals. They'll pray and they'll sit in waiting rooms. They'll pray and they'll show up at funeral homes. They'll pray and they'll, you know... Watch your kids. They'll pray and they'll mow the yard. They'll pray. And they'll provide support in any way they can. Even when it inconveniences us. Even when it costs us. Even when we don't have the time. Even when we're not sure exactly what to do. We're not going to show up and try to make a mess of things. We're not going to show up and quote scripture. We're not going to show up and tell our stories. We're not going to show up and try to fix things. We're going to shut up. We're going to show up and we're just going to serve. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to be present. And God honors our presence. God honors us showing up. God honors us doing whatever we can to tear the roof off to help somebody, even if we don't always get it right. And the reality is you don't, and neither do I. I have messed it up more than any of you. But I have learned when you just show up and when you try, God honors it. The reason it is so important to be the kind of friend who will tear the roof off to help someone is because it sends a powerful message. See, bottom of the ninth friends will tell the roof off to help you because they want you to know that God's not left you. This is what happens when you show up for a friend. It is a powerful reminder. You haven't left them, and neither has God. And I don't know how God does this, but he tends to work through us when we just show up to remind people of this incredible truth. So, as we wrap up, here's what I want you to do. I want to give you a couple things you can walk away with. But I want you to do me a favor first, and I'll tell you why I want you to do this in a second. I want you to pull out your phone. Hold on to your phone. I'm going to get you to use it in a minute, okay? So go right ahead. Pull that thing out. Hey, I, I can't really see your faces, but I can see your movements. So you can't cheat on me here. Pull out your phone. There you go. As you're pulling it out, here are the two things I want you to think about, okay? The first one is this. I want you to think of someone you know who's in the bottom of the knife. you got friends in your life just like I have in mine, right? Who is it? Whether it's a family member, maybe a coworker, maybe a roommate, maybe somebody in your neighborhood, 
Maybe somebody that you've heard about and you know, but you don't know real well. It may be a good friend. Maybe somebody in your small group, somebody you serve with. I want you to think about one person who's in some type of bottom of the knife. It may be extremely difficult. It may just be a bump in the road that's really hard for them. You know they're going to get through it eventually, but it's tough right now. Think about that person. And now here's the second thing I want you to do. I want you to decide what you can do for them. What does it look like to be a tear-the-roof-off kind of friend for them this week? What's that look like? What's it, yeah, you're going to pray for them. That's important. But in addition to praying, what's it look like? What do you need to do? Organize some meals for them? Show up and have coffee with them and just listen? You know, watch their kids so they can get some sleep? What's that look like? You, you, if you're not sure what that looks like, all you have to do is stop and say, God, will you show me one way that I can let them know that I love them and care about them. And I guarantee you, something will come to mind over the course of this week. You think of that person, you decide the one thing you can do. Now, here's what I want you to do with your phone. Right now, you can do this right here. Right now, I want you to text either your spouse if you're married, I want you to text a good friend if you're not, somebody who's going to ask you this week, hey, did you go do that? Because here's the reality. You know this. We all have great intentions, and then we walk out of here, and life hits us, and we get caught in the whirlwind again, and you will get you know, two weeks away from here, and it'll dawn on you, oh, I never did that. So I want you to text a spouse, or I want you to text a friend, I want you to text somebody, and tell them, hey, I'm planning to do this for so-and-so this week. Will you remind me, or will you ask me about it later on? Go ahead, and that's account. You're like, I don't want that account. No, 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 you need that accountability. So do I. So let them know. And then you walk out of here this week and you do it. And you do it. Here's why this is so important and I'll wrap up. Can you imagine if just those of us who are followers of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you want to be this kind of person too, you'll do this too. Can you imagine just those of us who are part of this church this week walked out and did this kind of love, this kind of support, this kind of serving, this kind of sacrifice for somebody in our community. Can you imagine the difference it would make? Can you imagine how supported people would feel? Can you imagine how encouraged they would feel? How many people in our community would get to the end of this week and be reminded somebody cares? How many people in our community would get to the end of this week and begin to realize that God is for them, that He cares? How many people in our community would be encouraged in a bottom-of-the-knife moment if we just took the time to reach out and to demonstrate our love and our support in a simple, tangible way, how many people would have the hope that God has not left them, that he's with them? And you know how they would get that hope? God would demonstrate that hope and give them that encouragement through you and through what you do. So don't worry about being perfect. Be present. Just show up. Do what you can. And let's let people know that we are the kind of friends who will do whatever it takes to let them know God has not left them. Because we are confident if we can bring Jesus to them, something good's going to happen. Let me pray for us. Father, whatever the situations are, whoever the people are that you're bringing to all of our minds today, would you give us the wisdom to know what we can do for them, the wisdom to know how to show them we love them, the wisdom to know how to show them we care, 
the wisdom to know how to demonstrate to them that they're not alone. And then would you give us the power to stick to this promise and to do it? To set aside some time, to spend some money, to do whatever it is we need to do to communicate your love to them in a very simple way. And then take our act of service, take our love, and do something with it that only you can do. Help those people in that moment to recognize not only are we the kind of friends who care, but they have a Father in heaven who cares, and you have not forgotten them. Use this to make an impact and a difference in their lives far greater than anything we could create on our own. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.